Section 56 of Personal Memoirs of U.S. Grant. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Clevenger. Personal Memoirs of U.S. Grant by Ulysses S. Grant, Chapter 56. Left Flank Movement Across the Chickahominy and James, General Lee, Visit to Butler, The Movement on Petersburg, The Investment of Petersburg. Lee's position was now so near Richmond, and the intervening swamps of the Chickahominy so great an obstacle to the movement of troops in the face of an enemy, that I determined to make my next left flank move carry the army of the potomac south of the james river preparations for this were promptly commenced the move was a hazardous one to make the chickahominy river with its marshy and heavily timbered approaches had to be crossed all the bridges over it east of lee were destroyed the enemy had a shorter line and better roads to travel on to confront me in crossing more than fifty miles intervened between me and butler by the roads i should have to travel with both the james and the chickahominy unbridged to cross and last the army of the potomac had to be got out of a position but a few hundred yards from the enemy at the widest place lee if he did not choose to follow me might with his shorter distance to travel and his bridges over the chickahominy and the james move rapidly on butler and crush him before the army with me could come to his relief then too he might spare troops enough to send against hunter who was approaching lynchburg living upon the country he passed through and without ammunition further than what he carried with him but the move had to be made and i relied upon lee's not seeing my danger as i saw it besides we had armies on both sides of the james river and not far from the confederate capital i knew that its safety would be a matter of the first consideration with the executive legislative and judicial branches of the so-called confederate government if it was not with the military commanders but i took all the precautions i knew of to guard against all dangers sheridan was sent with two divisions to communicate with hunter and to break up the virginia central railroad and the james river canal on the seventh of june taking instructions to hunter to come back with him hunter was also informed by way of washington and the valley that sheridan was on the way to meet him the canal and central road and the regions penetrated by them were of vast importance to the enemy furnishing and carrying a large percent of all the supplies for the army of northern virginia and the people of richmond before sheridan got off on the seventh 
news was received from hunter reporting his advance to staunton and successful engagement with the enemy near that place on the fifth in which the confederate commander w s jones was killed on the fourth of june the enemy having withdrawn his left corps burnside on our right was moved up between warren and smith on the fifth birney returned to hancock which extended his left now to the chickahominy and warren was withdrawn to cold harbor wright was directed to send two divisions to the left to extend down the banks of that stream to bottoms bridge the cavalry extended still further east to jones's bridge on the seventh abercrombie who was in command at white house and who had been in command at our base of supplies in all the changes made from the start was ordered to take up the iron from the york river railroad and put it on boats and to be in readiness to move by water to city point on the eighth meade was directed to fortify a line down the bank overlooking the chickahominy under cover of which the army could move on the ninth abercrombie was directed to send all organized troops arriving at white house without debarking from their transports to report to butler halleck was at this time instructed to send all reinforcements to city point on the eleventh i wrote cold harbor virginia june eleventh eighteen sixty four major general b f butler commanding department of virginia and north carolina the movement to transfer this army to the south side of the james river will commence after dark to-morrow night colonel comstock of my staff was sent specially to ascertain what was necessary to make your position secure in the interval during which the enemy might use most of his force against you and also to ascertain what point on the river we should reach to effect a crossing if it should not be practicable to reach this side of the river at bermuda hundred colonel comstock has not yet returned so that i cannot make instructions as definite as i would wish but the time between this and sunday night being so short in which to get word to you i must do the best i can colonel dent goes to the chickahominy to take to you the eighteenth corps the corps will leave its position in the trenches as early in the evening to-morrow as possible and make a forced march to cole's landing or ferry where it should reach by ten a m the following morning this corps numbers now fifteen thousand three hundred men they take with them neither wagons nor artillery these latter marching with the balance of the army to the james river the remainder of the army will cross the chickahominy at long bridge and at jones's and strike the river at the most practicable crossing below city point i directed several days ago 
that all reinforcements for the army should be sent to you. I am not advised of the number that may have gone, but suppose you have received from six to ten thousand. General Smith will also reach you as soon as the enemy could, going by the way of Richmond. The balance of the force will not be more than one day behind, unless detained by the whole of Lee's army, in which case you will be strong enough. I wish you would direct the proper staff officers, your chief engineer, and your chief quartermaster, to commence at once the collection of all the means in their reach for crossing the army on its arrival. If there is a point below City Point where a pontoon bridge can be thrown, have it laid. Expecting the arrival of the 18th Corps by Monday night, if you deem it practicable from the force you have to seize and hold Petersburg, you may prepare to start on the arrival of troops to hold your present lines. I do not want Petersburg visited, however, unless it is held, nor an attempt to take it, unless you feel a reasonable degree of confidence of success. If you should go there, I think troops should take nothing with them except what they can carry depending upon supplies being sent after the place is secured. If Colonel Dent should not succeed in securing the requisite amount of transportation for the 18th Corps before reaching you, please have the balance supplied. U.S. Grant, Lieutenant General. P.S. On reflection, I will send the 18th Corps by way of White House. The distance which they will have to march will be enough shorter to enable them to reach you about the same time, and the uncertainty of navigation on the Chickahominy will be avoided. U.S. Grant, Cold Harbor, Virginia, June 11, 1864. Major General G. G. Meade, Commanding Army of the Potomac. Colonel Comstock, who visited the James River for the purpose of ascertaining the best point below Bermuda Hundred to which to march the army, has not yet returned. It is now getting so late, however, that all preparations may be made for the move tomorrow night without waiting longer. The movement will be made as heretofore agreed upon, that is, the 18th Corps, make a rapid march with the infantry alone, their wagons and artillery accompanying the balance of the army to Cole's Landing or Ferry, and there embark for City Point, losing no time for rest until they reach the latter point. The Fifth Corps will seize Long Bridge and move out on the Long Bridge Road to its junction with Quaker Road, or until stopped by the enemy. The other three corps will follow in such order as you may direct, one of them crossing at Long Bridge and two at Jones's Bridge. After the crossing is effected, the most practicable roads will be taken to reach about Fort Powhatan. Of course, this is supposing the enemy makes no opposition to our advance. 
the fifth corps after securing the passage of the balance of the army will join or follow in rear of the corps which crosses the same bridge with themselves the wagon train should be kept well east of the troops and if a crossing can be found or made lower down than jones's they should take it u s grant lieutenant general p s in view of the long march to reach cole's landing and the uncertainty of being able to embark a large number of men there the direction of the eighteenth corps may be changed to white house they should be directed to load up transports and start them as fast as loaded without waiting for the whole corps or even whole divisions to go together u s grant about this time word was received through the richmond papers of the eleventh that crook and averill had united and were moving east this with the news of hunter's successful engagement near staunton was no doubt known to lee before it was to me then sheridan leaving with two divisions of cavalry looked indeed threatening both to lee's communications and supplies much of his cavalry was sent after sheridan and early with ewell's entire corps was sent to the valley supplies were growing scarce in richmond and the sources from which to draw them were in our hands people from outside began to pour into richmond to help eat up the little on hand consternation reigned there on the twelfth smith was ordered to move at night to white house not to stop until he reached there and to take boats at once for city point leaving his trains and artillery to move by land soon after dark some of the cavalry at long bridge effected a crossing by wading and floundering through the water and mud leaving their horses behind and drove away the cavalry pickets a pontoon bridge was speedily thrown across over which the remainder of the army soon passed and pushed out for a mile or two to watch and detain any advance that might be made from the other side warren followed the cavalry and by the morning of the thirteenth had his whole corps over hancock followed warren burnside took the road to jones's bridge followed by wright ferrero's division with the wagon train moved further east by window shades and cole's ferry our rear being covered by cavalry it was known that the enemy had some gunboats at richmond these might run down at night and inflict great damage upon us before they could be sunk or captured by our navy general butler had in advance loaded some vessels with stone ready to be sunk so as to obstruct the channel in an emergency on the thirteenth i sent orders to have these sunk as high up the river as we could guard them and prevent their removal by the enemy as soon as warren's corps was over the chickahominy it marched out and joined the cavalry in holding the roads from richmond while the army passed 
No attempt was made by the enemy to impede our march, however, but Warren and Wilson reported the enemy strongly fortified in their front. By the evening of the 13th, Hancock's corps was at Charles City Courthouse on the James River. Burnside's and Wright's corps were on the Chickahominy and crossed during the night, Warren's corps and the cavalry still covering the army. The material for a pontoon bridge was already at hand, and the work of laying it was commenced immediately, under the superintendence of Brigadier General Benham, commanding the Engineer Brigade. On the evening of the 14th, the crossing commenced, Hancock in advance, using both the bridge and boats. When the Wilderness Campaign commenced, the Army of the Potomac, including Burnside's, which was a separate command until the 24th of May, when it was incorporated with the main army, numbered about 116,000 men. During the progress of the campaign, about 40,000 reinforcements were received. At the crossing of the James River, June 14th, 15th, the army numbered about 115,000. Besides the ordinary losses incident to a campaign of six weeks, nearly constant fighting or skirmishing, about one-half of the artillery was sent back to Washington, and many men were discharged by reason of the expiration of their term of service. In estimating our strength, every enlisted man and every commissioned officer present is included, no matter how employed in bands, sick and field hospitals, hospital attendants, company cooks, and all. Operating in an enemy's country, and being supplied always from a distant base, large detachment had at all times to be sent from the front, not only to guard the base of supplies and the roads to it, but all the roads leading to our flanks and rear. We were also operating in a country unknown to us, and without competent guides or maps showing the roads accurately. The manner of estimating numbers in the two armies differs materially. In the Confederate Army, often, only bayonets are taken into account. Never, I believe, do they estimate more than are handling the guns of the artillery and armed with muskets or carbines. Generally, the latter are far enough away to be excluded from the count in any one field. Officers and details of enlisted men are not included. In the northern armies the estimate is most liberal, taking in all connected with the army and drawing pay. Estimated in the same manner as ours, Lee had not less than 80,000 men at the start. His reinforcements were about equal to ours during the campaign, deducting the discharged men and those sent back. He was on the defensive and in a country in which every stream, every road, every obstacle to the movement of troops, and every natural defense was familiar to him and his army. The citizens were all friendly to him and his cause, and could, and did, furnish him with accurate reports of our every move. Rear guards were not necessary for him, and having always a railroad at his back, large wagon trains were not required. All circumstances considered, 
we did not have any advantage in numbers. General Lee, who had led the Army of Northern Virginia in all these contests, was a very highly estimated man in the Confederate Army and States, and filled also a very high place in the estimation of the people and press of the Northern States. His praise was sounded throughout the entire North after every action he was engaged in. The number of his forces was always lowered, and that of the national forces exaggerated. He was a large, austere man, and I judged difficult of approach to his subordinates. To be extolled by the entire press of the South after every engagement, and by a portion of the press North, with equal vehemence, was calculated to give him the entire confidence of his troops, and to make him feared by his antagonists. It was not an uncommon thing for my staff officers to hear from Eastern officers, Well, Grant has never met Bobby Lee yet. There were good and true officers who believe now that the Army of Northern Virginia was superior to the Army of the Potomac man to man. I do not believe so, except as the advantages spoken of above made them so. Before the end, I believe the difference was the other way. The Army of Northern Virginia became despondent and saw the end. It did not please them. The National Army saw the same thing and were encouraged by it. The advance of the Army of the Potomac reached the James on the 14th of June. Preparations were at once commenced for laying the pontoon bridges and crossing the river. As already stated, I had previously ordered General Butler to have two vessels loaded with stone and carried up the river to a point above that occupied by our gunboats, where the channel was narrow and sunk there, so as to obstruct the passage and prevent Confederate gunboats from coming down the river. Butler had had these boats filled and put in position but had not had them sunk before my arrival. I ordered this done, and also directed that he should turn over all material and boats not then in use in the river to be used in ferrying the troops across. I then, on the 14th, took a steamer and ran up to Bermuda Hundred to see General Butler for the purpose of directing a movement against Petersburg, while our troops of the Army of the Potomac were crossing. I had sent General W. F. Smith back from Cold Harbor by the way of White House, thence on steamers to City Point, for the purpose of giving General Butler more troops with which to accomplish this result. General Butler was ordered to send Smith with his troops reinforced, as far as that could be conveniently done from other parts of the Army of the James. He gave Smith about 6,000 reinforcements, including some 2,500 cavalry under Cotts, and about 3,500 colored infantry under Hinks. The distance which Smith had to move to reach the enemy's lines was about six miles, and the Confederate advance line of works was but two miles outside of Petersburg. 
Smith was to move under cover of night, up close to the enemy's works, and assault as soon as he could after daylight. I believed then, and still believe, that Petersburg could have been easily captured at that time. It only had about 2,500 men in the defenses, besides some irregular troops consisting of citizens and employees in the city who took up arms in case of emergency. Smith started as proposed, but his advance encountered a rebel force entrenched between City Point and their lines outside of Petersburg. This position he carried, with some loss to the enemy, but there was so much delay that it was daylight before his troops really got off from there. While there, I informed General Butler that Hancock's corps would cross the river and move to Petersburg to support Smith in case the latter was successful, and that I could reinforce there more rapidly than Lee could reinforce from his position. I returned down the river to where the troops of the Army of the Potomac now were, communicated to General Meade in writing the directions I had given to General Butler and directed him, Meade, to cross Hancock's corps over under cover of night and push them forward in the morning to Petersburg, halting them, however, at a designated point until they could hear from Smith. I also informed General Meade that I had ordered rations from Bermuda Hundred for Hancock's Corps, and desired him to issue them speedily and to lose no more time than was absolutely necessary. The rations did not reach him, however, and Hancock, while he got all his corps over during the night, remained until half-past ten in the hope of receiving them. He then moved without them, and on the road received a note from General W. F. Smith asking him to come on. This seems to be the first information that General Hancock had received of the fact that he was to go to Petersburg, or that anything particular was expected of him. Otherwise, he would have been there by four o'clock in the afternoon. Smith arrived in front of the enemy's lines early in the forenoon of the 15th, and spent the day until after seven o'clock in the evening in reconnoitering what appeared to be empty works. The enemy's line consisted of redans occupying commanding positions, with rifle pits connecting them, to the east side of Petersburg, from the Appomattox back, there were thirteen of these redans extending a distance of several miles, probably three. If they had been properly manned, they could have held out against any force that could have attacked them, at least until reinforcements could have got up from the north of Richmond. Smith assaulted with the colored troops and with success. By nine o'clock at night, he was in possession of five of these redans and, of course, of the connecting lines of rifle pits. All of them contained artillery, which fell into our hands. Hancock came up and proposed to take any part assigned to him, and Smith asked him to relieve his men who were in the trenches. Next morning, the 16th, Hancock himself was in command and captured another redan. 
Meade came up in the afternoon and succeeded Hancock, who had to be relieved temporarily from the command of his corps on account of the breaking out afresh of the wound he had received at Gettysburg. During the day, Meade assaulted and carried one more redan to his right and two to his left. In all this we lost very heavily. The works were not strongly manned, but they all had guns in them which fell into our hands, together with the men who were handling them in the effort to repel these assaults. Up to this time, Beauregard, who had commanded south of Richmond, had received no reinforcements except Hoke's division from Drury's Bluff, which had arrived on the morning of the 16th, though he had urged the authorities very strongly to send them believing as he did that petersburg would be a valuable prize which we might seek during the seventeenth the fighting was very severe and the losses heavy and at night our troops occupied about the same position they had occupied in the morning except that they held a redan which had been captured by potter during the day during the night, however, Beauregard fell back to the line which had been already selected, and commenced fortifying it. Our troops advanced on the 18th to the line which he had abandoned, and found that the Confederate loss had been very severe, many of the enemy's dead still remaining in the ditches and in front of them. Colonel J. L. Chamberlain of the 20th Maine, was wounded on the 18th. He was gallantly leading his brigade at the time, as he had been in the habit of doing in all the engagements in which he had previously been engaged. He had several times been recommended for a brigadier generalcy for gallant and meritorious conduct. On this occasion, however, I promoted him on the spot and forwarded a copy of my order to the War Department, asking that my act might be confirmed and Chamberlain's name sent to the Senate for confirmation without any delay. This was done, and at last a gallant and meritorious officer received partial justice at the hands of his government, which he had served so faithfully and so well. If General Hancock's orders of the 15th had been communicated to him, that officer, with his usual promptness, would undoubtedly have been upon the ground around Petersburg as early as four o'clock in the afternoon of the 15th. The days were long, and it would have given him considerable time before night. I do not think there is any doubt that Petersburg itself could have been carried without much loss, or at least, if protected by interdetached works, that a line could have been established very much in rear of the one then occupied by the enemy. This would have given us control of both the Weldon and Southside railroads. This would also have saved an immense amount of hard fighting which had to be done from the 15th to the 18th, and would have given us greatly the advantage in the long siege which ensued. I now ordered the troops to be put under cover, and allowed some of the rest which they had so long needed. They remained quiet, 
except that there was more or less firing every day until the 22nd when General Meade ordered an advance towards the Weldon Railroad. We were very anxious to get to that road, and even round to the South Side Railroad if possible. Meade moved Hancock's Corps, now commanded by Birney, to the left, with a view to at least force the enemy to stay within the limits of his own line. General Wright, with the 6th Corps, was ordered by a road further south to march directly for the Weldon Road. The enemy passed in between these two corps and attacked vigorously, and with very serious results to the national troops, who were then withdrawn from their advanced position. The Army of the Potomac was given the investment of Petersburg, while the Army of the James held Bermuda Hundred and all the ground we possess north of the James River. The Ninth Corps, Burnside's, was placed upon the right at Petersburg, the 5th, Warren's, next, the 2nd, Birney's, next, then the 6th, Wright's, broken off to the left and south, thus began the siege of Petersburg. End of section 56. Recording by Jim Clevenger, Little Rock, Arkansas, jim at jocclev.com.